morning, church. My name is Terry Swan. If we have not met, I'm the senior pastor here. I'm delighted to be with you today, and I get to preach today here in this service, and I'm always excited to be able to do that. We've been in this sermon series called In Hindsight, Hindsight in 2020, where we've been looking backwards in order to move forwards. Uh, the first week we talked about regret and how we could reshape our regrets. Um, instead of living and wallowing, as my granny would say, um, in those regrets of moving forward, being able to look at them as a kind of wisdom, and um, how would we do something differently in the future. The second week, we talked about forgiveness, and how forgiveness is really about us and our freedom, so that we can look back in our life, and when we've been able to find that forgiveness, how it has freed us. And today, we're going to be talking a little bit about priorities. Have we, in hindsight, had our priorities in the right spot? So will you pray with me? Good and gracious God, wash over us your word today. Help us to experience you. Touch our minds and hearts and souls. And I pray, oh God, that you would help me to get out of the way so that your light might shine. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, one of the things I've always loved about being a United Methodist is that practical sense. John Wesley, the father of Methodism, really was a practical theologian. What he believed is how he lived his life, and that's what practical theolog theology really is about. It's about being congruent. Are we living out our beliefs? Is that coming out in us, in the world around us? We are to apply the ways of Christ in our life and to contribute to the world's becoming what God intends it to be. And when we do that, then we can ask ourselves, is God calling us to move in a certain direction? Are we being everything that God intends us to be? Now, last month, I'm sure you may have watched a movie. In some families, it's a tradition. But in December, people, they pull out this old black and white movie that a lot of families watch. It's a wonderful life, right? How many saw it this last Christmas? It's a wonderful life. How many have seen it before? It's a wonderful life. Okay, good. I'm glad to know that. Um, see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you just a little bit about what it means to live a wonderful life, but if you've not seen the movie, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. This is the ending, so I'm going to let you see the ending. <laughs> Remember the movie, George Bailey had um, given up his dream to take over the family business, the banking and loan, and um, he didn't get to be that architect that he dreamed about being. Uh, he stayed in this small town, and he had helped numerous people along his life. A crisis happens, and he's brought up on false accusations, and the community surrounded him. But before that, he'd kind of gotten to the end of his rope. He went to the bridge, and he jumped off into the icy water, and that's when Clarence, the garden angel, shows up and shows him what his life would have been like or what others' lives would have been like if he wasn't there. And um, really, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about looking back upon our life uh, George begins to understand what a wonderful life is really about. It's about relationships, about love, kindness. Now, I was doing a little research on the movie, and I found out something you might not know. 
that Jimmy Stewart, the man who plays George Bailey in this movie, had things happen to him that never happened to him in any other film he was ever making. And, and so he, he shared that there's that scene in the coffee shop in which he's pleading to God. Remember that scene? He's, he's saying, dear God, God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not, pr I'm not a praying man, he says. If, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of the rope. Show me the way, God. And Stuart says later on in life that when he breaks down in tears, that wasn't planned in the script. He said, as I said those words, I felt the loneliness and hopelessness of people who had nowhere to turn. And my eyes filled with tears. I broke down sobbing. This was not planned at all, but the power of that prayer... The realization that our Father in heaven is there to help the hopeless had reduced me to tears. The power of that prayer. Now, I can imagine that many people have asked themselves, perhaps, really, what is a wonderful life? And how do I get there? How do I get there? There's a path to the wonderful life. We know that. And then there's a counterfeit path. I think the world, that's like that in everything. We find counterfeit paths along the way. Counterfeit paths that take us away from the ways of God and the ways of Christ and, and take us down a path that we may not, may not reflect upon really well. Sometimes Joe and I will look back upon our lives when we first started out. Anybody here with me on that? They kind of look back. and When we first started out, we got married at 19. Everybody said it would not last. <laughs> well, it did, you know, uh, for a few years. <laughs> and um, we didn't have anything. In fact, one of our friends who was a, a really dear friend of ours looked at me and said, how in the world are you going to live? You have nothing. And we said, yeah, we know. We don't have anything. We took an old farmhouse that was on my, some of my father's property. Uh, and we painted and peeled wallpaper and fixed and, and did everything we could to that house months prior to the wedding. And, in fact, once we finished, uh, could move in, it probably still could be condemned and <sighs> standards today. But you know, we were happy. We look back on those moments and we look back upon some of those simpler times as some of the happiest moments that we have ever had. We only paid $50 a month rent for that house because it was that bad. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's what the counterfeit world teaches us is that more money, more possessions, nicer things is the way to happiness or a wonderful life. And that couldn't be more opposite than what Jesus teaches us. You know, I think maybe the temptations to take the counterfeit path is the reason that Jesus talked about money and possessions so much in his ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells those gathered to quit worrying about your life. Quit worrying about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. He says, seek ye first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all shall be added unto you. In other words, put God first, and everything else is going to fall into place. He tells the rich young ruler that you're going to have to get rid of some stuff if you want to follow me. You know, he was so wrapped up in his material possessions that he couldn't see that Jesus was offering him something much, much better. Jesus was not fussing, fussing at him about the wealth that day. He was saying, hey, look, follow me because it's not all about the riches. There's a greater treasure in store for you. The greater treasure is my way. There's a wealth beyond counting. Rudyard Kipling spoke of this once. He said, the world will tell you to be greatly concerned about money, position, or glory, but then someday you will meet a person who cares for none of these things. Then you will know how poor you are. Isn't that true? It's no wonder, though, that we think that money and possessions and things like that are our greater treasures because that's what the world tells us. That's what the counterfeit path tells us. All you have to do is watch TV or listen to the radio or get on the Internet or get on social media, and you're hearing the next best thing, right? The thing that you need. You're, you can't live a great life unless you have this. I mean, we hear that all the time. And so... It's no wonder that our society is stretched beyond their means. I looked us up some statistics as I was preparing today. Did you know, I know you know the cost of living has increased. You've experienced it, right? You've been trying to balance your life. The good news is the cost of um, our income has gone up, but the bad news is, is that our cost of living has exceeded the increases. Did you know what the average income for a family in Missouri is, what an average family lives off of in Missouri, ranges between $53,000 and $72,000 a year. That's the average income for a family. However, the average cost of living in St. Louis is $79,000 a year. And so this is where we see this discrepancy. This is why people are stretched and living beyond their means. It's no wonder that we have debt, especially credit card debt. The average credit card debt is $10,000 for a family. And so there's this, this thing that we're living with, this tension that we're living with. We have it a little bit better in St. Louis than St. Charles County, though. St. Charles County's average cost of living is $81,000. And so it ranges in the areas that you live. And so you can do this mental checkoff. You can go through your bills, and you can see how much it takes to live on. And then you can kind of go through your discretionary spending and how that's affected. And then we look back and we think, am I living a wonderful life? Or am I living a stress-filled life? Anyone here besides me and Joe ever thought about money? It happens in every marriage, every family, spending too much, not saving enough, right? That Finding that balance, stress can cause that tension. And you know that old saying, the more you make, the more you... Oh, come on, guys. You know this. The more you make, the more you spend, 
That's an old saying that is so true, that is so very true. Now, there's a lot of things that money can buy, but like those good practical theologians, the Beatles, <laughs> money can't buy you love, right? Money can't buy you love, and money can't buy you peace, and money can't buy you joy, true joy. The key to the wonderful life is to get those priorities straight and to create something that I call margin. To create that margin in your life that you can have some wiggle room, to live within means. You see, God created us in his image, and God is a generous God, amen? God is a generous God. All you have to do is look back over the things that God has given us, life, beauty, creation, joy, kindness, care. God is a generous God, and God calls us to model those things in us as well. We're created in his image, so therefore we're called to be kind and generous and loving and caring toward others. Paul tells us this in the church, to the church in Corinth. This is in the second letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 9. God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. That way you will have everything you need always and in everything to provide more than enough for every kind of good work. Did he say that God would provide you for everything you want? No. But he said God would provide you for everything you need and always in everything to provide more than enough for every kind of good work. You hear that margin? It's not only the way God calls us to live, but it's the way that God has shaped our hearts. If sowing seeds generously of kindness and care for others is love in action, that practical theology, then generosity is the love that has taken over our pocketbook, taken over our resources of time and money. He goes further to say, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous in every way. Such generosity produces thanksgiving to God through us. Thanksgiving to God through us. You see, God has blessed us. God has given us these gifts. You see, they're all God's anyway. They're not ours. They're God's. And so God has given us these gifts so that we can be a gift to someone else. We're, if we're created in God's image and, we're, and God is a generous God, then we're called to be generous people, giving from our heart. A cheerful giver. Not coerced, not pressured, but a cheerful giver. One who gives from their heart because of the love that they have for God and for others. I heard Adam Hamilton talk about a conversation that he had a while back, and it's tax season, and we're getting ready, you know, pulling those things together for our taxes, and it reminded me of the conversation that he had. He said he had a conversation in, when he brought all these things in to, to do the tax return, and the, and the tax consultant said to him, 
You know, a tax return is really a selfie. You know, selfie, you know. And um, Hamilton said, what do you mean a selfie? And he says, well, I can look at somebody's tax return and really kind of get where their priorities lie. He said, I can look at somebody's housing mortgage interest and see if it's really, really high and their income's pretty moderate. He said, I can, I can pretty much guess how much they will give in donations to charitable contributions. He gave a, uh, an example of someone who was running for office and had a very um, uh, modest income for the kind of position that he was running for, around $200,000, and looked at his housing mortgage interest, and it was pretty high, and he guessed that his donations were pretty low. And he got to the donations, and sure enough, it was like $300 for the year. In other words, this person had not created much margin in their life. They'd gotten their priorities kind of out of whack. And so they weren't able to give in the ways that they wanted to give. You see, getting our priorities straight is giving to God first what is his already and not our leftovers. Not our leftovers. Giving to God first because Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see that selfie? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what you do with your money and how you um, spend your money and spend your time describes who you are. It's a picture of what's going on in your heart, how it's shaped it describes your character, and perhaps, in, you know, in the gospel, there are tons of stories that, that show us the heart of someone, but perhaps there's no greater story of how someone's heart is shaped than the story of the woman who comes and anoints Jesus with the oil in the alabaster jar. If you remember the story, they're in Bethany. They're at the house of Simon, also known as Simon the leper. He had had leprosy, and he'd been healed. And he invites Jesus to this dinner, and this woman shows up with this jar that's full of a very, very expensive oil. Now, this is not the olive oil that's found in Israel. This is nard, the most expensive of anointing oils. has probably been passed down from generation to generation, probably imported. And she takes this jar and she pours it upon Jesus and anoints him. And the disciples and those that are gathered around the table say, make her stop this. this, this, this you know, you could have sold all of this and, and given it to the poor. And Jesus said, but she has her priorities straight. She's putting me first. She's putting me first. She knows that I will, he says, I will not be with you much longer. And she's anointing me for my burial. She puts Christ first. And it's probably the clearest selfie in the Bible we will ever see. You know this woman's heart. You know where she's drawn because love has no limits. Love counts no cost. Love calculates no deal. 
Love never asks how much. Love gives. And she broke it. She broke the jar and poured it upon Jesus. Now, she could have saved it for a rainy day, stored it back. She could have sold it, lived off the proceeds. She could have passed it down to her children to generation after generation, but she knew who was first in her life, and she lived accordingly. You know, I can imagine that she looked back upon her life and that decision with gratitude and thanksgiving because she realized everything Jesus had done for her, the life that Christ had given her. You see, the key to the wonderful life is the love that we share with others. Amen? This is the key to the wonderful life. And you saw that at the end of the movie as everyone showed up to help George Bailey when these false accusations came to him. He'd done so much for so many people and shared love with the community, given of himself, and so they were giving back. That's the key to the wonderful life. It's this love that we share with each other, a love that is given to us in Christ Jesus, a love that puts him first, a love that says, God, I love you. You have been generous to me in everything that I have and everything that I experience. And you're calling me to be a generous person in return. When we find that, we find the wonderful life that God has in store for us. Will you pray with me? Gracious and holy God, thank you for all that you have given, for we know it is all yours. Help us to share our life with someone else. To be a blessing for someone else. To, to share love and kindness. To share a relationship with you. There's no greater gift, God, than your love poured out for us. For you gave yourself. You gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.